0: When I was a kid, I remember that our, my siblings, my brother, my sisters, very often on Sunday night, we would gather in the living room around the TV set to watch The Wonderful World of Disney. Did any of you guys ever watch The Wonderful World of Disney? Or, or the, maybe if you're older, it was uh, uh, The Wonderful Color World, of, there were like different names over time. Uh, I remember when it first came out in color, they had to get that in there, uh, or... Uh, but, but I remember, you know, we got really excited when they would show one of the Disney movies, which they didn't do every week, but sometimes they'd block out two hours and show an entire Disney movie. And for you young people, it's hard to understand, but this was a big deal when a movie came on television, because we didn't see movies on television that often. And so it felt like a really big deal. So on Sunday night, for us, it was 6 o'clock. We would gather and And the show would start with this uh, combination of video and animation. But what I remember most about it, no matter whether it was a movie or some other documentary or other type of thing they would show, they would always begin and the big Disney World castle would come into view and Tinkerbell would wave her wand over the castle and these stars or fireworks or whatever would happen. And they would play that song, When you wish upon a star... Makes no difference who you are when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. You remember that song? Isn't that? But I associate Disney with that image and that song. You know, when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. And you know, for Walt Disney, that seemed kind of like it was the case. You guys ever seen any of the movies or read about the life of Walt Disney? You know he was he was an animator who had this dream that he could actually not just draw pictures and entertain people and make some money. Uh, He certainly made a lot of money, but he had this dream that he could invite people into a magical place that that you and your children could enter his dreams with him. You know that was his wish. And it started with the animated features. you know. It, it started with things like Snow White and Pinocchio uh, with, with seven dwarfs and wooden boys and, and um, animals that helped princesses and paupers to do whatever it was they were called to do. Uh, but then he was able to create these theme parks. Have any, of you, have any of you been to Disneyland, the original theme park? I've never been there, but I've been to Disney World. And he was so meticulous about making that dream come alive did you know in disney world there are tunnels that go under the ground so all the the uh, i think they call them um, what? the cast yes they don't call them the employees they're the cast because they're all playing in a show and if they need to go somewhere they go underground so that you don't see them going where they need to go did you know that i don't know if you've ever been in the south but it's the, the greatest miracle of Disney World is that there are no mosquitoes. <laughs> Walt Disney wanted there to be no mosquitoes. He wanted this to be a magical place. And I don't know, what they did is they created the park so that there's literally no place for water to stand. And so there's no mosquitoes laying eggs in Disney World. And so there are no mosquitoes there. Isn't that amazing? He wanted you to believe that you were in a magical kingdom. So it's clean clean. There's no mosquitoes, and you don't even see the people moving back and forth. It's really an interesting and incredible place. And some of you have been multiple times. I've been multiple times. Um, some of you haven't been, but you long to go. Maybe you don't care about it, but the idea is this. Uh, it, it's, it may not be true that wishing upon a star makes your dreams come true, but it's amazing what people can do when they are sold out to a, to a vision, to a dream, and to a purpose when they work hard to make it done and men and women around the world throughout history have had dreams that have come true that seemed impossible and yet they came to life and you know if you, even if you know more of the story of Disney, Disney World and, and, and Walt Disney Studios they almost went bankrupt multiple times you know they, they had they lost money on some of those movies that we now consider classics um, but it was it was a dream that he didn't let go of and it came to life Now, how much more is that true when the dream is held by the men and women of God and God is the one who placed that dream in their hearts? How much more possible is it to create a magical world, if you will, a magical kingdom, (laughs) a kingdom where people love one another, a kingdom where the grace of God showers down, a kingdom where people who are hurt, instead of acting out of their offense, they act out of the grace and the mercy that's been poured into their lives by the God of the universe. How much more can that magical kingdom be real when people are called by the God who created that kingdom to do these incredible things? And by the way, you know, we focus on Walt Disney, but that cast member who's, you know, 19 years old and it's her first job and she's playing a, 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 a character. Or just someone who cleans up the trash that gets dropped on the ground. Those people are just as important to that dream happening as Walt Disney ever was. You know, different roles for sure. But even those small things that, that bring about that magical kingdom, they're necessary and important parts of the process. And God knows how to cast that play better than Walt Disney does. God knows how to write that script better than the writers of Disney Pixar right God knows how to orchestrate the whole thing better than any director ever could and church this is what we're invited into you and I this morning but really our whole lives have been the recipients of an invitation from God to create a magical kingdom here on earth right here on earth that's pretty exciting and you know, when we read the Bible, this is what we see over and over and over again. Particularly in the Book of Nehemiah. So, if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open up to the Book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the historical books. Um, it's right after all those First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. And in, in Nehemiah is actually the second half of what used to be called First and Second Ezra. So Ezra and, ne- and Nehemiah are considered by many to be one book, some who believe they're two separate, some who believe they're one. and some people even believe that whoever wrote the book of First and Second Chronicles also wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, taking first-hand accounts from those two named people, Ezra and Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah, in this second half of the story of restoration of kingdom building of magic kingdom building we see the story of god restoring the people of israel after the exile and if if you don't remember the story of the exile or maybe you've never heard the story of the exile uh, what's important to understand is that the people who are in it they i think for many of them it seemed impossible that israel would ever be restored to their land to their promised land that god gave them so just a, a quick history lesson. Uh, you remember that there was this man named Abraham that God called. And he said, I want you to come out of the place you are and come into the land of Canaan. And I'm going to give it to you as an, as an inheritance. And Abraham lived in Canaan. and He died in Canaan. And he had a son, Isaac. And Isaac lived in Canaan. And then Isaac had a son, uh, Jacob. And Jacob left Canaan, come back, came back to Canaan. And then he had a son, he had 12 sons, but he had a son named Joseph who was basically exiled by his brothers into Egypt. They pretended that, they had, uh, that he had been murdered by an, uh, killed by an animal, but in fact, they were going to kill him and he was only saved because he was sold into slavery and shipped off to Egypt. When a great famine came to Canaan, the land of Canaan, which is what we call Israel today basically... Um, there was no food for Jacob and his family. But Joseph, through the miraculous work of God, had become the second highest ranking official in all of Egypt. He went from a slave to a prisoner to the highest ranking official in Egypt. God knows how to write a good story, doesn't he? <laughs> Jacob was playing, uh, he, he was in the cast, and he, he got to play one of those amazing roles, a role of a lifetime. Which, by the way, the role of a lifetime hardly ever feels pleasant when you're in it. It's only exciting when you get through it. So if you're going through something hard, remember that today. But anyway, uh, Joseph is able to feed his brothers and his father and his family by bringing them to Egypt. But over time, over the course of hundreds of years, the, the the, the people of Israel, Jacob, his other name was Israel, so the people of Israel, his family become slaves to the pharaohs, slaves to the people of Egypt. God calls them out of Egypt. Remember those ten plagues from Sunday school? The plagues of the frogs and the gnats and the the boils and the darkness and the Nile turning to blood and all those things happened so that God could bring his people out of Egypt. And then he met them at a mountain. He met them at a mountain. And Moses, who brought the people out of Egypt with God's help, He met with God on that mountain and God said, Look, Moses, here's the deal. I'm going to give you that land that I promised to Abraham. And not just a little plot where you can bury your wife and be buried yourself like Abraham had. But I'm going to give you the whole thing. All of Israel is going to take this land. It's flowing with milk and honey. You're going to prosper there. You're going to have peace there. It's going to be a magical kingdom. All I ask Is that you love me, you obey me, and you honor me. Okay? Love me with all your heart, soul, and strength. Right? Obey my commandments and honor me. He says, bring your sacrifices. Honor me with what you have. Don't think that it was because of you that this greatness came. It's because of me. But he said this, if you don't do those things, the land will spit you out. I'm going to cast you out of the land. And that's exactly what happened. After the reign of King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel. And Israel was essentially the ten tribes that rejected David's grandson, Rehoboam. So they were not faithful to David's line, and they were not faithful to God. And that kingdom, that northern kingdom, they were removed from their land by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. There's no test. You don't have to remember the date. That's right. Now, the southern kingdom was essentially the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin and also the Levites. I know I said there were 10 in the north and 2 in the south and the Levites, and I know that's 13, but trust me, it all works out in God's economy. The Levites were God's tribe. So they were not counted at that point among the twelve. And so you've got Judah, which is where David is from. You've got the Benjamites and you've got the Levites. And they stay in the southern kingdom and they call it Judah. They were faithful to David's grandson, but they were not always faithful to the Lord. So then in 586 BC, the Babylonians kicked them out of the land. They conquered Judah and they scattered the people. Not all of them, but the the. I, I kind of hate to say it, but the best and the brightest of the land, they took out and put them in service. And the reason they did that is they would, whenever they conquered a place, they would take the leaders, they would take the children of the leaders, they would take the educated people, and they would disperse them so that there would be no one to lead a rebellion. This is where we get the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is where we get the story of Esther. This is where we get the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is where we get the prophecies of, of Jeremiah, of, of uh, uh, Zechariah, of Haggai, of Malachi. These are the stories of the exile, where the people of God are cast out into the, the dispersed among the world. Now those ten tribes of the northern kingdom were essentially lost to history. No one knows what happened to them. The lost tribes of Israel. And there's all sorts of interesting stories that you could... You could go uh, into all the rabbit holes on Google if you want to and find out about all the theories about those 10 tribes. But the people of the southern kingdom, they were allowed to return to Judah. They were allowed to go back in multiple waves of a return of the exiles. And these people of Judah, the Benjamites, the Judites, and the Levites, they became known as Jews. And Jews is just an english version of the name judah and that's where we get that's where they get that name so the people of judah are the jews it's those three tribes judah benjamin and levi now it took about 50 years between the first exile and the first return and so hopefully you guys if you haven't done it yet please do read the book of ezra and read the book of nehemiah but in the book of ezra we start to see that the exiles are returning, and they begin to rebuild the temple. So God's favors with them through King Darius, and they re, they begin to rebuild the temple. There's a point where they stop. There's like a 20 year gap, but they finally do rebuild the temple, and they're able to uh, begin to restore the city. But the problem is the walls around the city haven't been repaired. And it's hard for us sometimes to understand the significance of walls in a city because, you know, we understand that walls don't necessarily provide that much protection. But in a time before airplanes, in a time before um, tanks, in a time before explosives and guns, these walls were incredibly important. I can't, I can't forward my slide. There we go. So this is one of the walls around Jerusalem. Now, the walls that you see here, these were built in the 1600s by the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, I believe his name was. Yes, you can. Oh well, let me let me finish, and then we, we can connect on that afterwards. What's that? OK, well, I tell you what? because the people at home won't be able to hear you. I'll talk a little bit about the walls, and we can connect afterwards, all right? So these walls, these walls were built um, all the way around the city, and it was really the only thing that would protect the city from attack. Now, Jerusalem is built on a mountainside. And so in order to attack the city, you go up the mountain, and then you've got these walls there. It makes it very hard, obviously. It makes it hard to attack. It makes it easier to defend. Now, of course, these walls were destroyed over and over and over again. Jerusalem was a very strategic city. You guys probably know that Jerusalem is still a very important city. It's still a very contested city. And there's still conflict over what country or what people have ownership of the city of Jerusalem. It's a holy city for Christians. It's obviously a holy city for Jews. And it's a holy city for Muslims. And, and right now, to this very day, the city of Jerusalem uh, is, is it's divided, it's contested. There's, there's questions about who really has control. And there's conflict over it still to this day. And many of you may have remembered at different times in history where uh, it wasn't that long ago there were, there were a, a lot of stabbings that happened there. But before, there were actual standoffs and fights and, and essentially holy wars <laughs> fought over the city of Jerusalem. And so... When we come to the book of Nehemiah, where we are is the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls haven't been restored, and so the city is completely exposed. It is defenseless. It is, uh, by definition, without peace. You cannot have peace when you're always susceptible to attack. And it's still under the control, now of the Persians who conquered the, the Babylonian Empire. The Persians control this. And King Artaxerxes I is the king of Persia during the time of Nehemiah. So, put yourself in this place historically. You're a Jewish man or woman, and you know what God had promised you. You know what your people have done, and you know that as things stand, your nation and your holy city is essentially a laughingstock of the world God promised them that they would be a renowned nation in the world and yet here they were a scorned nation in the world imagine the depth of the regret the depth of the pain the anger, the sadness Uh, you're probably feeling mixed emotions because you know it was your grandparents who ruined it for everybody But if you were honest, you probably would recognize that the same thing that caused them to turn against God is at work in your own heart. And so you know that you're also responsible. You know that God has promised that if you'll humble yourself, He'll restore you, but He hasn't done it yet. And so you probably haven't really fully been humbled. And you're waiting, and you're wondering, and you're hoping. But you're also mourning and weeping and struggling and in comes Nehemiah if you look in Nehemiah chapter 1 with me we're going to start in the first word, the first verse the first verse starts with the words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah and then this is his first person narrative story of what it was like for him now Nehemiah grew up in Persia Okay, he's living in Susa, so he's living in the capital of the Persian Empire. He's living with the king Artaxerxes. Uh, He's never, probably never been to Jerusalem. He's only heard the stories. And he hasn't seen it with his own eyes. But apparently his brother travels to Jerusalem and comes back. We don't get all the details, but I'm imagining that like Nehemiah, his brother um, Hanani was probably also in service of the king because that's what they would do they would take these prominent families and put their children in service and now two generations later these guys are adults they're in service of the king Hanani is able to go to Jerusalem and when he comes back he says Hanani what is it like there what is it like for those who survived the exile and those who are back in the province the people who never left and the people who've gone back what is it like for them And he hears this. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When he hears this, what does he say? I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. For days, Nehemiah mourns, fasts, and prays to the Lord about the city of his origin where his people came from, that he's never seen, but he's heard about the devastation there. Guys, can you put yourself in that place? You know those post-apocalyptic movies where it's the United States and it's you know, 2050 and New York City is destroyed and the, and the cities and the roads and everything is in shambles? and there's just a few people kind of scraping out an existence, either hiding in the rubble or, you know, out in the, in the rural areas, just kind of like, just barely able to survive. When you see that, does your heart ever, like, obviously it's not, it hasn't happened, but you kind of think, like, oh man, if that were to happen, how sad would I be? How devastating would it be if our nation were just destroyed like that? For Nehemiah, it was the real thing, it was the real deal. Wasn't a movie from Hollywood. It was it happened. It was there, and he hears this. And you know, this is a hundred years after the exile began. By this point, a hundred years later, and Nehemiah is in this position where he's serving the person who's responsible, not necessarily for the destruction of a city, because again, that was a hundred years ago but it's those people, right? It's those, it's those foreigners. It's those uh, conquerors. It's those, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know what we would call them today, but just like the people that you hate because they destroyed your city. And he's working for them. And he's experiencing this anguish. Now, Nehemiah was in a very special position. He was a cupbearer. And a cupbearer's job is to make sure, essentially, that the king doesn't die. That the king isn't poisoned. He would guard the, cup, the king's food. He might even have to taste the king's food and drink before he eats it. And for Artaxerxes, his father and his brother were both murdered by the, body, the head of the bodyguards for the Persian Empire. So Artaxerxes has reason to be nervous. So who do you make your cupbearer when you're nervous that even your closest Uh, protectors can kill you in a moment's notice. Someone that you trust explicitly. Someone that you trust completely. Someone that you have no doubt that they're going to do the right thing at the right time, that they are going to be faithful to you. This is the kind of trust that Artaxerxes had in Nehemiah. And not only that, because Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, uh, he he wouldn't only have to be trustworthy, but He's really the guy who's always there next to the king when everything's going on. He's kind of like a bodyguard slash advisor, okay? So he has to be really smart. He's got to be a capable person. He needs to be able to hear what's going on and be able to lean in and say, my lord, consider this. And Artaxerxes actually cares about his opinion. And there's something in chapter 2 that gives us another little hint of this, is that he's there with the king and his wife, which is very unusual in that culture because kings didn't want other men near their wife, right? It's very important. In that culture, women were kept separate from men except for family, and in this case, Nehemiah. So he was very trusted, very trusted. And so, here's Nehemiah, he's an honorable, trustworthy man, he's in the presence of the king, and he finds out that his city is in shambles, that the walls have fallen, the gates are destroyed, and Nehemiah somehow realizes that it's his calling to restore those walls. But what I want to look at is three things that happen before Nehemiah realizes what his calling is. Three things that happen before he does anything to fix those walls. Okay, And the first one is that uh, Nehemiah was able to align his heart with God's heart. He aligned his heart with God's heart. So we already saw in the story this happening. Nehemiah hears about the walls of Jerusalem and he begins to weep. He begins to cry. He begins to mourn. He begins to fast. When, you t- when, I, when I talk about aligning your heart with God's heart or Nehemiah aligning his heart with God's heart, what I mean is that in the deep emotional places, you know, and we, we use the word heart, but in, the, in, in other languages, the word is, is guts. It's basically like in the inside parts that you can feel aching when you're sad, or you can feel them, you know, churning when you're afraid. Or you can feel it when you're excited or anxious. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but, but your, your, basically your entire nervous system in your brain is connected to this nervous system in your gut. And so you feel all these things physically in your body. But you're, What you're feeling is the physical response to your emotions, to, to, your, to this Part of your heart. Again, we call it the heart, but it's been called all these internal organs in different cultures at one point in time. Your spleen, your liver, your heart, (laughs) your your whatever. uh, That's the way it's described, because you feel it there. So what is it like when the response we have internally is similar to the response that God has internally? Now, of course, God doesn't have a body, right? So God doesn't have a tum tum. Heart. But God has emotions. You know that? Sometimes we pass over this when we read the Bible. God has strong emotions. God gets angry. God experiences joy and delight. God doesn't experience fear for himself, uh, but he does uh, communicate regret, disappointment. You know, God has these, he expresses love. He expresses hate. God has these strong emotions. Now, if we want to ever understand our calling, it's going to be important and necessary that first we're able to align our heart with the heart of God. Now, when you read the Bible, you know what God's heart is for the broken and exiled nation of Israel. God says he mourns it, it makes him sad. He longs for Israel to return to him. God expresses longing. God is—he's—he's uh, he's basically looking forward to the time when they will turn back to him and he can restore them to the land, restore them to milk and honey, restore them to peace. But it hasn't happened yet. We don't know what Nehemiah was doing before this time, but there was something about the report from his brother and his brother's friends that triggered this strong emotional response that changed his life forever. He said, I'm aching for the things that God aches for. I'm longing for the things that God longs for. I'm weeping for the things that God weeps for, if God weeps for them. But you understand what I mean. I'm mourning for the things he mourns for. Uh, you know, and then he prays to God. He fasts. What is fasting except just this outward expression that I'm so upset that I can't even eat. I've never experienced that myself <laughs> because I think when I get upset, I want to eat more. But I know that some of you, when you get really upset, it's hard even to eat. That's what fasting is a symbol or a sign or, or just an actual direct reflection of. I'm so distraught, I can't even eat. You know, we see in the ancient culture that they rip their clothes and they put ashes on their head. These are visible signs. This is how upset I am. This is how uh, much I ache over this. And you know that song, Hosanna, by Brooke Fraser, where she talks about, uh, you know, I see a generation rising up to take its place with selfless faith, selfless faith. And then she has this bridge. And in her bridge, it's really this powerful moment in the song because it's a powerful reality and life. She says, "Break my heart for what breaks yours." And then she there's she doesn't fill in all the words, but she says, "I'm going to give myself. I'm going to give everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Show me how to love like you have loved me." What is she singing? What are we singing? It's a prayer. It's a prayer, "Lord, make my heart like your heart. Align my heart with yours. Help me to not just see the world you see, you see the world, but feel the world the way you feel the world. It's very different from what we often talk about. Uh, I, this is just, I mentioned in our study guide, there's a lot of sermons about how you should follow the Lord instead of your feelings. Right? Have we all heard a sermon about how to follow the Lord instead of following your feelings? The Bible invites and essentially demands that we follow the Lord with our feelings that our feelings be also following the Lord. You don't reject your feelings to follow the Lord. You bring your feelings along. And God says, I want you to feel the way I feel. The Lord says, I rejoice with those who rejoice. I mourn with those who mourn. So you do the same thing. Right? Jesus says, oh Israel, how long I've, how, how long I've desired to gather you like a Like a hen gathers her chicks, but you have rejected me. He longs for this. He aches for the restoration of Israel. Nehemiah ached for the the restoration of Israel. All right, so what does that have to do uh, with you and me? Well, what are the things that God aches for that you ache for? What is it that you ache for? What makes you passionate? Do you know what passion means originally? Passion means suffer. That's why we talk about the passion of the Christ at Easter. To, passion means suffer. It means that you feel so strongly about it that you can barely stand it. That's what passion is. So whether it's something you're excited about, you're so excited about it that you can't stand it. Have You, uh, you know, I love it when little children get excited, and sometimes they're like... It's like they don't know what to do with their bodies because they, they haven't learned yet to suppress their feelings. They haven't learned yet to, to, to fix their, their exuberant uh, outbursts of, of joy. And they haven't learned yet to, to restrict their outbursts of sadness either. So, you know, when something ha- sad happens, it's like the lip starts to quiver and the tears start to come out and then, ah! And the thing is god is more like that than he's like most of us adults who's like kind of learned to keep it in right so god's saying let your heart be like mine you know paul's heart was broken for the lost and he was passionate about establishing churches where there were no other churches where there was no gospel presence paul says i don't want to go be a missionary where there's already churches i want to be a missionary where there's no churches you know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, the, German, the German monk who changed the world with the Reformation, and our church is a recipient of that, of that uh, work. He was broken for sinners in need of grace. He just couldn't stand any longer the legalism that he experienced, and he wanted everyone in the world to know the grace of God. Billy Graham's heart ached for those who didn't know the gospel. And out of that ache... He ended up traveling the world, speaking at over 400 crusades in 185 countries to over 210 million people. There was a small group of believers over on High Street who ached for the presence of God in a church in the mill village of Dedham in 1843. And those people ached enough to give their time, their talent, and their treasure to establish the church that we're in a part of today what happens when people ache for the things that God aches for miracles happen miracles happen nothing of consequence is ever done without the alignment of hearts okay you can believe something should be done all day long but until you feel it you won't do it because the pain of doing nothing has to be bigger than the pain of doing something And that something is almost always hard. So it has to hurt more to stay on the sidelines than it hurts to get in the game. Right? You know, there are hundreds of athletes who are willing to destroy their bodies for the love of the game. And not that we have to do that, but where are the believers who are willing to set aside the comfort to get in the game? Right? Some of, some of them are in this room. Some of them are in other places. I'm not saying there aren't any. But I'm saying, wow, there should be more, right? If we ache for the things God aches for, there should be more. Now, don't be confused when I say an aligned heart aches for the things God aches for and think that I'm only talking about pain. Because there are those joyful things that we ache for, right? Now, some of you are probably, you know, you've been on a diet and you were aching for ice cream because you love it, not because you hate it. Right, you were aching. You wanted it so badly, it hurt. Uh, but some of you just, like, you love children so much that it almost hurts. You know, you see a child with a need, and you just want to fill it because it brings you joy. You want to see their faces light up when they discover something new. You want to, you want to see how God forms their heart as they learn about his word and about his promises. Um, so it's not always sadness. Did anyone see that movie, Soul, by Disney-Pixar? Speaking of Disney and Pixar, yeah, you, got it. you saw it. So uh, Soul is about, I'm not going to give it all away, but it's about this guy named Joe, right? Is it Joe? Yeah. Joe Gardner. He, he's a music teacher and he loves jazz. He loves jazz. His life is jazz, right? And he believes, I mean, you can kind of see how jazz hasn't always served him well, but he still loves it anyway. And he believes that part of his mission is to help other people experience the joy that he's experienced through jazz. So he is a jazz evangelist. Everyone in this room, by the way, is an evangelist. It's just The question is, what, are you, what is your good news about? Is your good news about the discounts that you got? Um, uh, something on sale? Is your good news about uh, uh, Jesus Christ? You know, now, those aren't the only two options, but I'm saying, you get where I'm going. So Joe just aches. He aches to tell people about jazz because he thinks it will give them greater meaning and purpose in life. And that's what I'm talking about. It's not just what makes you sad or what makes you angry. What makes you joyful? What makes you light up? What gives you delight? One more example of this one. You guys know I love, love, love Eric Little, the chariots of fire, uh, the Scottish missionary to China who also was an Olympic Uh, champion who uh, his story is so incredible but there's this part in the movie chariots of fire and as best i can determine it is an actual quote from eric little his sister is trying to convince him like look eric you got to go back to the mission field you got to go back to china why are you wasting your time running why are you wasting your time with athletics when you could be serving the gospel in china and eric says And it's in the movie, but again, best I can tell, it's a real quote. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. His heart, he believed, was aligned with God. Now, I'm very hesitant to correct Eric Little. His theology was pretty good. But I would say God made him for a purpose, but not but he made him fast. And part of his purpose was that he made him fast we can see very clearly how God used Eric Little's speed to further the gospel. He used Eric Little's speed to bless people. He used Eric's little speed to bless Eric Little. And so when our heart is aligned with God, amazing things happen. So again, we don't just want to see the world the way God sees it. We want to feel the world the way God feels it. Now, I've got two more points, and I'm going to do them quickly. I'm not going to take as much time because I think think it's a little easier for us to get into the space of these other two. The second one is that Nehemiah was able to align his mind with God's mind. Now, the way I want to illustrate this is in the passage, what what he does, what Nehemiah does, is he starts praying to God. And look at what he says um, in verse 5. Then I said, Nehemiah, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let's pause right there. What is Nehemiah doing? He's saying, God, you're amazing. Well, that's not just flattery. God doesn't need to be flattered. But you know what is important to God? This is kind of hard for us to understand. We can't relate to this. If anyone else were God, if anyone else were doing the things God does, as they are, they would be egotistical maniacs, full-bore narcissists that you wouldn't be able to trust with anything. Why? Because God thinks he's the greatest thing in the universe. The difference between him and the maniac is that he's right. The, The God of the universe is the greatest thing in the universe okay? He thinks he's better than everyone else, but you know what? He's right. So if he were to think anything other than that, he would be a liar and he would be wrong. Here's the other thing. What is the best thing God can give you in the entire universe? Himself. God cannot give you anything better than himself. So for Nehemiah to say, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, He's saying, God, I agree with you about who you are. I am speaking the truth about you. And then he says, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments? What is he saying? God, I know what kind of character you have. You're righteous and good and holy and just. And you're merciful and gracious and loving. Together at the same time. He says, your, your love endures, but also we have to obey your commandments. He's saying, I'm speaking truth about your character, Lord. I'm saying true things about who you are. And then he says this, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Now, first of all, he's praying day and night for Israel. He is passionately committed to praying about Israel. Now, this puts me to shame. What am I that concerned about. What do I care that much about to pray day and night about it? You know, really the things that tend to get me in that state are really scary emergencies. And then when they're over, I kind of tend to go back to not doing that. But he's stuck he's sticking with it. And here's what he says, "I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you." We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Okay, God, I'm speaking the truth. I'm agreeing with you about you. And now I'm speaking the truth, and I'm agreeing with you about us. Guys, this is hard. It is real easy for us to gather in here on Sunday morning and say, Great are you, Lord. It's very hard to come in here on on Sunday morning and say, I am a sinner, Lord. Have mercy on me. And by the way, let me be really specific about the sins. And let me be really specific about our sins. And let me be really specific about the sins of my family. And let me be really specific about the sins of my neighbors. And let me be really specific not about this church, but about the church. That's hard. That's scary. But if you cannot speak truth about who God is and about who we is, then you cannot have a mind aligned with God's mind. You cannot have your thinking aligned with the Lord's. This is a difficult calling to have this kind of alignment with the Lord. But it's pretty clear what it looks like. Now, how do we know what God thinks about us, about himself, about the world? <laughs> yeah that's right it's right here you have it you don't have to guess on top of that there might be specific things that you're curious about you have the holy spirit and he will affirm and confirm and specify what you read here into your life if you listen and you should listen with others because you will get it wrong because everything that we want to hear is easier to hear and everything we don't want to hear is harder to hear. And so you need to do it with others who can say, you know what, maybe God's not telling you that it's okay to rip off that convenience store because you wanted the extra money that, that was you know, maybe stolen from you. So maybe that's not God's will. Yeah, let's rethink that one. If the Holy Spirit told you that, it's time to go back to the Holy Spirit and say, can you speak a little more clearly, please? And maybe can you help me listen better? You know, so this is an important process. It's it's a tense process. There's, there's tension there, okay? But it's a real one. And we're going to see that Nehemiah, he is, he, he's in communication with the Lord, right? We don't know that he had the scripture. We know Ezra did, but we don't know if Nehemiah did. And so, He has the Holy Spirit, he has the Lord, he's in communication with him, he's talking to him, and he's listening to him. And then Nehemiah takes it a step further. He doesn't just align his mind with God's mind, he aligns his will with God's will. Now look at this. We're going to look in in verse 8 of chapter 1. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, did God forget what he said? No, God didn't forget. But Nehemiah reminds him anyway. Nehemiah reminds me, this is a biblical thing to do with God. God, remember what you said I know you don't forget, but let's just get this out on the table. And part of it is we kind of forget, we don't understand always, that this is a covenant promise. This is a contract that God has with his people. It is a public uh, obligation that the Lord has to his people. And so it's kind of like Nehemiah is saying, hey, I've got the contract here. I know you've read it, Lord. I know you signed it. I know you know what's in it. But just for everyone's sake, can we just remind everyone what it says? You're going to restore your people. That's what it says. They are your servants, verse 10, and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. So what is Nehemiah doing? He's saying, Lord, I know your will is to restore Israel, so now that's my will. I know your plan is to bring back your people, so now that's my plan. Right? This is where it gets to the nitty-gritty. You can ache for the thing God's ach- God aches for, and you can believe the things that God believes, but if you don't make your will align with God's will, you still haven't stepped into your calling. You can't. And of course, you guys know the most famous example of this is Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's about to go to the cross. And he's sweating blood. Right? He is in deep anguish. We sometimes forget or we, we want to gloss over Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. And that human part of him does not want to suffer. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That human part doesn't want to suffer. That human part doesn't want to have his wrists impaled by massive nails. Does not want to be beaten and scourged with whips. He does not want to suffocate to death on the cross. And he does not want to have the Father forsake him when the sins of the world are placed on him. And he bears the guilt and the shame of every single human being on the planet. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus says, I don't want to do it. I'm scared of it. It's going to hurt. This is agony. But my will will be your will, no matter what. I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want to do. And that is a legitimate aligning of a will. I don't want to do this, but you're telling me to do it, so I'm going to do it. And it doesn't matter if you're a kid who needs to clean your room or you're an adult who needs to, uh, you know, respond favorably to a request from another adult or from a child or whoever it is that's making, you know, whatever it is. When you align your will with another's, it's, you're not saying that you necessarily want to do it, you're saying that you're choosing to do it either way. Why? Why would you do that? Because you know it's true and right to do it. Your mind is aligned. And the pain of not doing it for you is greater than the pain of doing it. So as much pain as there was for Jesus in the cross, there was more pain in abandoning the calling that he had to redeem sinners, to restore the world, and to make all things new, and for this magical kingdom to come to earth. So look, guys, here's the thing. Every single one of us, every single one of you, myself, all of us, God wants to use us to make a magical kingdom right here on earth. If Disney can do it with tunnels and water designs, and whatever else and he can do it how much more can we do it with the Lord of the universe how much more can we do it with the Holy Spirit how much more can we do it with the resurrected Christ how much more all God is waiting for and, and I mean this literally God is waiting because we, we read in the scripture that he searches the world looking for people who are humbled and who are yielding to him All he's waiting for is people whose hearts have been aligned with his heart, whose minds have been aligned with his mind, and whose wills have been aligned with his will. And as you become increasingly that kind of person, increasingly God will use you to do magical things for his kingdom. Increasingly God will use you to both perform and witness and be a part of miracles. And increasingly, you will experience the great joy that comes from following the Lord. Okay, do you see how that all plays together? Do you see that the result is delight in the end? Jesus knew that. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. For the joy that was on the other side, it's not all hard, nasty, broken, everything. There's delight in it. And there's delight on the other side of it. And church, God is issuing an invitation today and he's been giving it to you your entire life. Join in. Join in. Be a part. Don't miss your opportunity. So church, I I do want to pray for you. And then I'm going to, Howard has something he wants to share. But I want to pray for you first. we're going to have on June 25th a moment of consecration. But if even right now you know that you need to submit yourself before the Lord or repent before the Lord or, or express your, your eagerness to follow the Lord in these ways, I want to invite you as we sing, you know, just kind of come up here. And I know you had to spread out, right? We've got to keep our space. But just kind of come near to, to, to this spot where just a little while ago we broke the bread of the body of Christ together and consecrate yourself in this place to say, Lord, I want to have that kind of heart. Or, Father, I haven't thought the way you thought, but I do now. Or, Lord, I've resisted following you with my will, but I submit my will to you. Or, Lord, this is something I've been waiting for and now I'm so excited to step, whatever it is, and just commit yourself to the Lord. If you need to do that or want to do that today, please. Take this time as we sing. So let me pray. Father God, we, we come to you knowing that this call before us is way bigger than anything we can do in the natural. Lord, we know that it's far greater, probably for most of us, something that scares us and maybe we've never even done before. But Lord, just as Nehemiah had that ability to, to, to kind of step into, with you, the anguish, the truth, and the purposes that you have for the world. So, Lord, we ask you to help us do the same thing, that your Holy Spirit would be moving and stirring in us right now, that we would, that we would indeed be feeling it in our gut, in our heart, in our, in our innards, uh, this, this emotion uh, that, and, and this reality that says, as much as I'm scared of that I know I need it as much as I'm afraid of it I know it's good for me as much as it'll hurt I know there'll be greater joy on the other side and so Lord even today help us to commit ourselves to you and Lord as we prepare to sing as we prepare to dedicate ourselves to you Lord help it to be concrete for us not just oh yeah my heart with God but in this way I mourn where God mourns In this way, I rejoice where God rejoices. In this truth, I agree with the Lord about who he is and who I am and where our world is. In these things, what God says he will do, I also will do. And to make it very real and concrete. Lord, help us in that by the power of Jesus. Amen.